Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. My name is Mike Brown, and I am coming to you from Langley, British Columbia, and Matthew Stockton is all the way downtown in Vancouver. How are you, Matthew? I am good. I have just shut a party out by closing the window. One of the restaurants nearby has started having Sunday disco dancing on the patio with lots of loud music. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. Why aren't you there instead of being here? Maybe that's why we should do it on a different day so you can go disco dance. (laughs) Nah, it's okay. I'm too old for disco dancing. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On the evening of June 24, 1992, after she failed to pick up her daughter from school, 41-year-old Gladys Wakabayashi's estranged husband Shinji and her daughter Elisa discovered her body in the hallway of their home in Shaughnessy, a posh Vancouver neighborhood. Gladys had been brutally slashed and bled out on the floor. Early on, after uncovering an affair between Derek James, a longtime family friend, and Gladys Wakabayashi, Jean Ann James, 52, Derek's wife, became the number one suspect in the murder. Jean Ann refused to talk, leaving police without enough physical evidence to lay charges. The crime would go unsolved for more than 15 years before Jean Ann James was arrested, after she confessed to the murder of her friend during an intricate Mr. Big sting. This is Dark Poutine, episode 284, The Murder of Gladys Wakabayashi. Born in 1951, Miao Fengling was the daughter and third child of Taiwanese billionaire Miao Yu Xiu. 
Mr. Miao founded several high-tech industrial enterprises. He was chair of Union Petrochemical Corp. and the Lianhua Industrial Holdings Company. Lianhua Industrial Holdings is a publicly traded Taiwan-based company specializing in processing and distributing wheat food products, including flour, wheat, bran, and pasta. Due to this association, Miao Yuxiu became known as the father of Taiwanese flour. After studying English and piano in the United States in her early years, Miao Fengling moved to Canada in 1976 to further her piano studies in Vancouver. Here, she met a Japanese man named Wakabayashi Shinji. Wakabayashi worked as a senior executive at Japan Airlines. They fell in love, married in 1980, and settled in a luxurious residence in the Shaughnessy area of Vancouver's West End. Feng Ling took the anglicized first name Gladys. I have various friends who have taken on anglicized names, mm-hmm. that, and I always find it interesting. And、uh, actually, just yesterday, I was talking to a neighbor of mine who's Japanese,、um, mm-hmm. Fuku, Fuku, and she goes by Sarah. Okay, and、um, I guess it's you know she was a teenager when she moved here, yeah, and and often what happens is. People just get so bored of getting your name butchered that they just choose something that's、sure. like, more common in the culture. Yeah, I have a, a friend named Charlotte whose real name is Mingray, and and Sarah is Fuku. I'm like, I can pronounce Fuku. Can I just call you Fuku, right? And she's like, Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. Like, if I ever moved to Japan, I wonder what would, my name would be. I have friends who have done the same thing. Like, my friend Millie is from Taiwan as well. Her real name is Mingling. Right. So she chose something that is really sort of close to what her real name is. Yeah. Shaughnessy is an exclusive residential area in Vancouver, and it covers around 447 hectares. It's framed by 16th Avenue to the north, 41st Avenue to the south, Oak Street to the east, and East Boulevard to the west. Established by the Canadian Pacific Railway in 1907, Shaughnessy was initially Vancouver's premier residential district, with early 20th-century homes needing a minimom value of $6,000. And featuring mature 90-year-old trees, it's predominantly comprised of single-family residences, with many being grand mansions from before World War II, situated on spacious landscape properties. While some apartments along Oak Street and a small collection of shops at 41st Avenue and Granville Street intersect, the core of Shaughnessy remains free from commercial structures. Its tranquil ambience characterizes Shaughnessy. The neighborhood boasts several evenly distributed parks, making them easily accessible to locals. Generally, this area of the city offers a peaceful environment with minimal traffic noise disturbances. It's a pretty nice place and pricey too. A quick search of Shaughnessy real estate listings shows prices at the low end of just over 2.5 million. And they top out at a dizzying twenty-eight million dollars, and those are just the places on the market right now. I like to go for walks around Shaughnessy because there's there's actually like a lot of parks and trees, and the gardens is up there. Lots of mansions. It's really necessary to walk around it. Mr. and Mrs. Wakabayashi had a daughter named Elisa. As their daughter matured. Gladys and Shinji became more involved in her school events, leading them to become acquainted with parents of her peers. Having pursued her studies abroad at a young age, Gladys was fluent in English and carried herself with a certain flair. 
She exceptionally bonded with Derek and Jean Ann James, the parents of one of Elisa's classmates. The two families frequently socialized, attending parties, and going on trips with their children. Derek James was employed at the Ground Control Center of Vancouver International Airport during this period, and his wife, Jean Ann, worked as a flight attendant. Their shared professional background in the aviation industry further strengthened the bond between the two families. I find this interesting. It is, you know, a similar background in terms of both working in the aviation industry, but really they're quite different, aren't they, Mike? Like one on the one side, you have a billionaires and an airline executive, yeah, and then on the other, sort of ground control and flight attendant. And I'm wondering if there was some jealousy there from a person like Jean Ann James, maybe in terms of what the other had beyond what was going on. If you, if you have a tendency toward that kind of envy, then maybe, yeah. 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 And she seems like she did. Maybe. Yeah. Like considering (laughs) what happens. Yeah. Over time, due to differences in their educational philosophies for Elisa and Shinji's frequent travels because of his job, Gladys and Shinji grew apart. By the time Elisa was 12, they were in the process of separating, with Gladys and Elisa continuing to live in their Vancouver West home on the 6800 block of Selkirk. After their separation, both Gladys and Shinji remained friendly with the James couple. Although they no longer felt they could be married, they did remain friends. There was no animosity between them. I always find it admirable when couples possess that capacity. When you can just recognize that the relationship is no longer viable, but gracefully part ways Mm -hmm. without sort of vilification, right? Uh, I think it it reflects a level of maturity. Yeah. Well, I think it's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah. On June 24th, 1992, in the morning, Gladys took Elisa to school at 8.45 a.m. Around 9 a.m., A woman resembling Gladys was spotted by a neighbor in the Wakabayashi home's open garage. Gladys had a piano lesson scheduled at her instructor's house at 10.30 a.m. Gladys never arrived. When her teacher tried calling her, he received only the home's answering service. Later that day, around 4.40 p.m., Elisa called her dad from school mentioning she had been waiting for her mom for two hours and couldn't reach her. Shinji Wakabayashi collected Elisa from school and they reached home at about 5.30 p.m. They noticed the back door was unlocked, which was unusual. Upon entering, Mr. Wakabayashi discovered Gladys's body in the hallway near the dressing area, lying face up with a significant wound on her neck and more on her legs. Shinji nudged Gladys to see if she was alive, but she didn't respond to his touch. Wakabayashi, hysterical, told Elisa what had happened and they called the police from his brother-in-law's home next door. I really hope that uh, Alisa didn't uh, see her mother that way. Do you know if she did? I don't believe she did. She could have. There's no mention of it anywhere that she did see it. She said that her father told her what had happened. So here's the way I sort of picture this scenario is they come home, they find the door unlocked, they call into the house, and they receive no answer. And Shinji Wakabayashi says to Elisa, just wait here a minute, I'm going to check through the house to see if, if something is wrong. Because he probably sensed something right away. Right. Okay. Yeah. Investigators found Gladys Wakabayashi tragically bled to death due to severe injuries. 
These injuries consisted of deep cuts around a significant portion of her neck, likely inflicted by a sharp instrument. The nature of these injuries indicated an attempt to decapitate her. Additionally, she had multiple cuts on her arms, legs, chest, and upper abdomen, along with defensive wounds on her hands. The severity of these injuries implied that the assailant acted in a fit of intense rage. Blood was splattered on the walls near her body and on the carpet where she was discovered. Detectives Peter and McLennan were the officers assigned to investigate the crime scene. Detective McLennan, the first to arrive, identified a partial shoe print in blood in a nearby bathroom. This print was from a woman's high-heeled shoe with a pointed toe and a distinctive honeycomb pattern on the sole. Detective Peters corroborated this observation. I found this to really stand out. Yeah. Um, I, I most likely wouldn't choose to wear my heels if I were planning to take someone's life. <laughs> Do you have <laughs> heels to wear? <laughs> no, but if I did, I wouldn't be wearing my Manolo Blahniks to, to a murder scene. Right. It's I just really unusual. Like, I just, you know, a murderer in high heels is just, I don't know. It just really stood out to me for some reason. Jack Mellis, a former RCMP officer with expertise in bloodstain pattern analysis and crime scene examination, described the shoe print as a partial shoe impression. At the crime scene, a knife was discovered in the kitchen sink. Dr. Ferris, a forensic pathologist, deduced from his 1992 report that the murder weapon was robust, heavy, and had a long blade. Despite the findings, the police couldn't match fingerprints from the scene to potential suspects, including Jean Ann James. The background investigation revealed that the Wakapayashis had separated in April 1991 and intended to divorce by July 1992. Jean Ann James grew suspicious of her husband's loyalty during this period. She confided her suspicions to her son's school custodian and even borrowed the custodian's car to tail her husband discreetly. In the months before the murder, Jean Ann James tried to track her husband's movements during his business trips. Gary Harris, a colleague of Mr. James, testified that Mr. James admitted to having an affair with a woman from Hull, Quebec. Mr. James had requested Harris to mislead Jean Ann James about his whereabouts if she called, which Harris did. Police also discovered messages from Derek James on the answering machine in the Wakabayashi home. Hi, love. Just me, said one message. Saturday night, I was just calling. Thank you. Bye. Another said, Hi, darling. It's me. I'll call you sometime. Don't call me. I'll call you. End quote. On July 15, 1992, Jean Ann asked her friend, Brendan Carver, a subcontractor at a research firm, to retrieve her husband's phone records for a weekend he was reportedly in Toronto. Carver got a hotel bill from where Derek James stayed, listing all calls made and received in his room. The Wakabayashi's home number appeared twice on his bill. This is really quite something. For somebody to be trying to hunt down what her husband's up to like this, getting people to sort of tap into phone systems or however the hell they did it and get get hotel receipts, it, it seems a little bit over the top versus just sitting down and having a conversation with your partner that you think something's going on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you mentioned earlier when we were sort of, uh, when we were talking about the case, like, is this legal? I don't think it is. No. How do you get somebody's phone records? That's their phone records, right? And you're not, you're not the police. You're not doing a proper investigation. I, I don't understand how this would have happened. 
Later, Detective McLennan further investigated and secured Mr. James' phone records from Transport Canada for May 25th to June 14, 1992. The records showed that Derek made six calls to the Wakabayashi residence during this period, varying between 8 and 42 minutes long. Upon discovering the two calls on the hotel bill through Carver, Jean Ann was desperate to identify who Mr. James had spoken to at the Wakabayashi home. Before she could inquire, Gladys asked Shinji to confirm to Jean Ann if she were to ask that it was him who had spoken with Mr. James. Jean Ann came by the Wakabayashi home, spoke with Shinji on June 22nd, and asked who had spoken to Derek. Shinji told Jean Ann that it had been him, not his wife, that Derek contacted. Elisa said that two days before the murder, when Jean Ann James was visiting, she'd heard the phone ringing and went into her mother's bedroom only to find Jean Ann James there. Jean Ann said she wanted to know if her husband, Derek James, was calling. On June 26, only two days after Gladys was murdered, Jean Ann James spoke with Shinji Wakabayashi at his hotel room in the Pan Pacific, where he and Elisa stayed as their home was a crime scene. Jean Ann wanted to know what happened. Shinji Wakabayashi later said, She told me, I've been looking for you, and asked me what had happened. I told her I can't say anything yet. After I explained that to her, she said, Yes, I understand, and hung up. Two days after that, Jean Ann came to visit Shinji at his mother-in-law's home. She asked me how Gladys was killed. I told her I can't really explain much, but I saw her lying on her back, face upward, and there was a cut on her neck. I find the actions of this woman truly disturbing. Yeah. So not only should, did she commit this heinous act, but now she's insinuating herself into the lives of the daughter and the husband and pretending to be oblivious to the this situation. Yeah. It's a really sinister behavior, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty grim. Another neighbor of the Wakabayashis came forward and gave a description of a woman she'd seen near the Wakabayashi home on the day of the murder. The description closely matched Jean and James. This, and all the other evidence was enough to give investigators suspicion about Jean Ann James and Gladys' murder. A subsequent search at Jean Ann James' home did not yield a shoe matching the one that had left the print at the crime scene. The police also took a carpet sample from her vehicle for analysis, but it didn't reveal any significant findings. Following the search of the James residence and extended surveillance, the police arrested and interrogated Jean Ann in July 1992. She denied any involvement in Gladys Wakabayashi's murder and was released. The police then shared crime details with the media, holding back some important details. Both print and radio reported on Gladys Wakabayashi's death, her injuries, the possibility that the assailant was acquainted with the victim due to an unlocked back door, and speculations about a secret relationship with a married man. One radio segment mentioned a knife as the murder weapon. This was misleading, as police knew one of the weapons had in fact been a box cutter. This would be crucial later on. By October 1992, the investigation concluded without enough evidence to charge anyone, but Jean Ann James was still the number one suspect. The family posted a private reward of $60,000 for details leading to the suspect's arrest and conviction. In June of 1993, near the year anniversary of Gladys Wakabayashi's murder, 
News articles were posted to jog the public's memories around the time of the crime. The police suspected that the perpetrator acted due to intense animosity or was driven by vengeance. They also considered the possibility that the individual was experiencing a significant mental health crisis during the assault. According to the police, evidence suggested that another woman might be responsible for Mrs. Wakabayashi's murder. It was believed she drove to the victim's home, parked, and entered the residence. After committing the crime, she left, ensuring she appeared composed to avoid drawing attention. The suspect was described as a white woman in her mid-fifties, five foot four inches in height, weighing between 120 and 130 pounds, and she had blonde hair. This matched Jean Ann James' description. Presumably, as she was a suspect, the hopes were that someone would recall seeing her at the Wakabayashi home on the day of the murder. The case, although always active, went cold for the next 14 years. In 2007, the Integrated Unsolved Homicide Unit revisited the case, contemplating an undercover operation to ascertain Jean Ann James' potential involvement in Ms. Wakabayashi's death. You know where we're going with this. Mr. Big, of course. It is Canada, after all. But how on earth do you entice a 68-year-old woman living in a nice house in Richmond, B.C. to become involved in a criminal organization? Well, apparently it wasn't that difficult. More after a quick break. All right, Matthew, uh, we are back for the second half of this. Um, what are your thoughts so far? You know, I just keep thinking of Elisa, their daughter. Yeah. Having to lose her mom. Like, this has got to be a heavy burden to, to know that your A, your mom was murdered, but B, murdered within the, by the friend group of the mm-hmm. people that you went on vacation with, the people that visited your house. Yeah. You know, it's... it's I, I hope she's been able to live a good life and flourish uh, despite this happening. Well, she did go, uh, because of her father's work and his traveling around and that kind of stuff, she did end up, I believe, living with her family in Taiwan for a little while. Okay. So she was well taken care of, obviously. But that doesn't make up for the loss of your mom. To understand Jean Ann James' routines and interests, the police surveilled her. They did wiretaps, they followed her all that kind of stuff. According to Eve Lazarus's book, Cold Case BC, Jean Ann frequented a local casino and played the slots for hours. A female operative was placed at the machine beside Jean Ann and the pair bonded over a shared love of gambling. The undercover operative was a high roller pumping money into the machine and cashing out without playing. Jean Ann was curious. The undercover operator told Jean Ann she was laundering money for an organization which allowed her to keep a cut afterward. She said it was quite lucrative. What money was being used to do this? Well, it's taxpayer money, obviously, Matthew, if it's RCMP. Our money. Our money, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I'm pretty sure that the RCMP has to account for every penny of that even though we don't use pennies here anymore. Our money is going to a gambling parlor. Well, no, it's not. If you pump money into a machine and just cash out, then essentially you're not spending anything. You just get the money back. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's how it's a money laundering thing. How do you do that? Pump it in and get the money back. 
have you ever played the slots ever? I put a quarter in at the airport when you and I were in Vegas. That's right. And then I pulled the little handle thing and a bunch of things came up and nobody came out. So that was, that's my extent. So we walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, essentially what you do is you'll put your money into the machine. Right. And you will have a certain amount of credits. You can cash those credits out okay, for the exact cash amount. Oh, like you put money and go, actually, I don't want to play, cash it out. Yep, exactly. Okay. And you learned here on Dark Poutine how to launder money at the casino. Oh, well. Jean Ann and the undercover operator became friends. Over lavish dinners, shopping trips, and spa visits, operatives learned that Jean Ann liked money, But the real key to her willingness lay with her desire for her son Adam's success as an actor. By January 2008, James was introduced to Detective A, and by April, she was assisting in the organization's criminal activities. She was involved in various illicit acts and expressed a willingness to commit violent acts during these. During the Mr. Big operation, Jean Ann was brought along to witness a simulated kidnapping and beating of someone who owed the gang $300,000 and needed to be taught a lesson. Far from being horrified at this display of violence, Jean Ann commented to the participants that the victim got away easy. She said that she would, quote, curl his dick with a curling iron. She said she would cut his knackers off. She suggested they give him a date-rape drug and cut his fingers off. She said that if murder were legal, she would have taken care of somebody this week. And she said that she would put raw meat on his crotch and let the dogs at him. Wow. Well, if nothing, she's very creative. This is one sick person. Yeah, she is definitely... uh, I'm I'm wondering if she ever was a flight attendant on one of my flights and offered me chicken or beef. Oh, dear. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Just don't eat the fish like an airplane. I've been on a lot of flights. I wouldn't be surprised if she had been one of my flight attendants. Yeah, maybe. In exchange for her involvement, the fictitious gang promised her a significant share in a lucrative job, equaled out to around $233,000, and a potential acting opportunity for her son Adam with A-listers. First, she had to be approved by the organization's boss, Mr. Big. Wait, did they actually call this guy Mr. Big to her? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No. I was going to be like, you know what? She, I, I, you know, I'm against Mr. Big, but if they called him Mr. Big and she still fell for it, then she just deserves it. <laughs> I'm sorry for the confusion, but no. Like, they'll <laughs> obviously have another name for it because sometimes <laughs> a criminal might read a book or something and maybe know that this kind of thing exists. And I guess the RCMP just hope that, uh, you know, if they don't call him Mr. Big and maybe they call him Monsieur Grand. (laughs) Monsieur Grand, well. (laughs) (laughs) Then then they're going to, you know, and we're not making light of the crime. We're making light of the investigation. Yes. Oh, dear. On the 27th of November, 2008, the meeting with Mr. Big occurred in a Montreal hotel. During her 100-minute interview with Mr. Big, Jean Ann James was confronted with a 1992 newspaper article about Ms. Wakabayashi's death. She admitted she'd gone over to Gladys Wakabayashi's under the pretense of a coffee date, but fully intended to kill her friend. During her interview with Mr. Big, Jean Ann James shared several significant details. She learned of her husband's affair with the deceased Ms. Wakabayashi through his hotel phone records, 
which ignited her intense anger and led her to murder Miss Wakabayashi. On the day of the murder, she parked some distance away from the Wakabayashi residence on Selkirk and approached the house discreetly. She had been to the house before, having stored wine there. After having coffee together, James told Ms. Wakabayashi that she had a gift for her, a necklace. She confronted Gladys as she was behind her to put on the necklace. Jean Ang claimed she was met with mockery, which enraged her, prompting her to slit Mrs. Wakabayashi's throat and make additional cuts to Mrs. Wakabayashi's legs and other body parts. Jean Ann knew the deep cut to the throat, which severed the jugular vein, would lead to rapid bleeding. The locations where Jean Ann said she made these cuts were known only to the killer, and that she had used a box cutter to make some of them and discarded it afterward. This was crucial holdback evidence that only the killer and police would know. After committing the act, Jean Ann left Gladys lying in the hallway between the bathroom and the primary bedroom. The murder occurred around 9 or 9.30 a.m., and she left without, she thought, having been seen. To ensure she left no DNA evidence, she wore gloves and even cleaned up a coffee cup she'd used. Jean Ann later disposed of her clothes in an incinerator and later sold her car. She said that the necklace she used as a ruse was stolen from her home in 1996, and she had no idea where it was. Jean Ann was arrested and charged with Gladys Wakabayashi's murder in December 2008. Her neighbors were floored. From a Richmond Review newspaper article by Martin Van Den Hemmel. Quote, That's absolutely absurd, one resident of a quiet residential area said at hearing the news that his neighbor Jean Ann James, 69, had been charged with first-degree murder. I'm stunned, said another. It's overwhelming, but you don't really know somebody deep inside. This is the biggest shock I ever had, said a nearby resident who entrusted James to watch over her house when she went out of town. Described as an affable, animal-loving neighbor who, along with her husband Derek, invited friends and neighbors over for summer and Christmas parties, Jean Ann James was arrested Friday following a multi-year investigation into the murder of James' friend, Gladys Wakabayashi, in 1992. End quote. After a challenging 19-year journey, the family of murder victim Gladys Wakabayashi finally witnessed justice being served. In November 2011, the B.C. Supreme Court jury declared Jean Ann James guilty of the first-degree murder of Gladys in June of 1992. Justice Catherine Bruce sentenced James, a 72-year-old from Richmond, to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for 25 years. So she's going to die in jail. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate that she wasn't caught sooner. I, I kind of, um, she had 19 years of freedom. Well, yeah, and she lived a pretty good life. She had a nice home in Richmond. Doesn't strike me that she's the kind of person who would have been haunted by what she'd done over this time. No. Right? Um, so she had that all that freedom when the victim's families were... Well, first of all, the victim was gone, hadn't, didn't have any of those years, and the family had to deal with this for the rest of their lives. They went through hell. Yeah. While Jean Ann James showed minimal reaction to the verdict, Gladys Wakabayashi's family expressed their relief and gratitude to all involved in the case. Susanna Yang, Ms. Wakabayashi's sister-in-law, and Doran Asenstadt, her son-in-law, both praised the justice system. They thanked everyone from the Vancouver police to the jury for their dedication. Yang emphasized the family's perseverance over the challenging 19 years. 
The trial, which spanned approximately three weeks, was most notable for James' recorded confession to the undercover officers during the Mr. Big sting. James' defense attorney, Asim Dosange, contended that the confessions obtained through the Mr. Big method are inherently dubious and appeals to overturn her conviction, claiming she'd falsely confessed, have failed. And, and this is the danger, right? This is the danger that all of it can be thrown out at any time. According to a CBC News article in 2015, a federal court denied Jean Ann's requested private prison visits with Derek James, the man whose extramarital relationship with Gladys Wakabayashi led Jean Ann to murder the billionaire's daughter. The 75-year-old sought to overturn a decision by prison officials who believe she posed an unmanageable risk of harming her husband during private visits. Judge James Russell stated that Jean Ann should heed the advice of those aiming to rehabilitate her rather than bypassing their recommendations. Mike, why would he want to have anything to do with her at this point? Like, does he have Stockholm Syndrome or something? <laughs> he might. I don't know. Right? Maybe he just, like, wants to ask her, what the heck, why did you do this? Yeah. Why on earth? You know, but I think it's in his best interest that he's not seeing her either. Prison reports suggest that Jean Ann James can be aggressive when angered and that her husband remained with her out of fear. Both have denied these claims. The judge emphasized James' need to address core issues related to her attitude, emotions, and marriage. She has declined specific prison programs aimed at rehabilitation, leading authorities to view her as a high-risk inmate. Yet another Mr. Big case. Canadian criminal law seems to be rife with them. As we've seen many times, the Mr. Big technique is a controversial police investigative method used primarily in Canada. It involves undercover officers creating a fictitious criminal organization, then drawing the suspect into it. The aim is to build a relationship of trust with the suspect, leading them to confess to a crime, often a serious one like murder, to the crime boss, Mr. Big. While this technique has led to confessions and subsequent convictions, it has also raised significant concerns, especially in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms context. Here are some of the problems inherent with the Mr. Big technique. The right to silence and self-incrimination, Section 7 and 11C of the Charter. The technique can be seen as a way to circumvent a suspect's right to silence and the right not to be compelled to be a witness against oneself. The confession is obtained outside of a traditional custodial setting, and suspects might feel compelled to confess to gain favor or out of fear within fake criminal organizations. Right to counsel, Section 10B of the Charter. Since the suspect is unaware they are interacting with law enforcement, they don't have the opportunity to consult with legal counsel before making potentially incriminating statements. Reliability of confessions. There's a risk that the confessions obtained through the Mr. Big technique are unreliable. The high-pressure environment, desire to impress the crime boss, or fear of repercussions within the fake criminal organization can lead suspects to exaggerate, fabricate, or falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit. Prejudicial evidence. The technique often involves drawing the suspect into fake criminal activities. Evidence of these activities, even if unrelated to the crime under investigation, can be highly prejudicial if presented to a jury. It can paint the accused negatively, potentially overshadowing the evidence related to the actual crime. Potential for abuse. 
The Mr. Big technique is manipulative and coercive. Vulnerable individuals, such as those with cognitive impairments, mental health issues, or those who are easily influenced, may be particularly susceptible to the pressures of this technique. Fair Rights, Section 11D of the Charter. The introduction of evidence obtained through the Mr. Big technique can potentially compromise the accused's right to a fair trial. The evidence's prejudicial nature and potential doubts about the confession's reliability can skew the trial process. But we're still using it. One particular case from Newfoundland, R v. Hart, in 2014, set some different parameters for the technique's use, but that's a whole other episode, and we'll get to that one. That's it for Dark Poutine episode 284, The Murder of Gladys Wakabayashi. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty, here is our first voicemail. Let's take a listen. Hey, Mike and Matt. Um, My name is also Mike, and I'm from Oakville, Ontario. Um, My job takes me all over central Canada from Winnipeg to Ottawa and uh, so I drive a lot and listen to your show I've caught up um, it's great and I was looking for something else because uh, I've caught up to the current episode and uh, I found a supernatural uh, podcast and a voice seemed very familiar and I realized it was uh, it was you Mike and I've never really heard you mention it on the show um, I don't always listen to the voicemails but uh, maybe you could take a chance to, to plug it yourself uh, so other listeners can hear it and uh, keep up the great work, guys. And also, do you have any other uh, projects on the go, anything else to listen to, or maybe Matthew does? Thanks. Go take a shit in your hat. Well, thanks, Mike. Wow. Thanks, uh, Mike. I, I do mention supernatural circumstances from time to time, but uh, but yeah, for sure. And I, I have a I have a, a podcast idea I've been speaking to Mike about, but... Um, my pesky day job gets in the way. Yeah, that that <laughs> tends to happen. I mean, I had a pesky day job uh, at the beginning of Dark Poutine as well. But uh, y- you you can manage if you really want to. You'll you'll get it done. Well, look at that. This is the perfect time for me to insert the new promo for Supernatural Circumstances into the show, and you'll hear it in every show moving forward. Hey, Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. Supernatural Circumstances. 
Supernatural Circumstances is a podcast that I do with Morgan Knudsen. You've heard her on uh, Dark Poutine a couple of times, and we started with the Esther Cox mystery in Amherst, Nova Scotia, here on Dark Poutine. And after that, Morgan and I were talking, we thought, you know, we work really well together. Let's do something. So we come up with Supernatural Circumstances. And every two weeks, because I can't do (laughs) two weekly podcasts, so every two weeks, Morgan and I talk about a particular supernatural case. So we've dealt with cryptids, hauntings, all kinds of crazy things. We're doing some UFO-related things uh, coming up, more on different cryptids like Mothman, all that kind of stuff. So if you have an interest in those things, maybe maybe, maybe give Supernatural Circumstances a listen. So thanks for the suggestion, Mike. All right, so Mike is from Oakville, Matthew, but what does he do there in Oakville, Ontario? Well, he he was talking about traveling a lot. Okay. Right. Um, So he travels to different zoos uh, because he's a specialist in bathing sloths. A sloth bather. You have to bathe them a very specific way, and so... He's just found his niche, and he goes from zoo to zoo uh, bathing with slots. Well, there you go. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, we need these things. <laughs> we, we definitely need these things. We need clean slots because <laughs> they're, they're, they're quite slothful, and they're not good at bathing themselves. Let's move on to our next voicemail. Hi, guys. My name is Marina Bedard. I'm from Peterborough, Ontario. I just want to say I'm a long-time listener and uh, first-time caller and uh, listen to all of your back history and uh, connection to two quick stories. I was uh, thrilled to hear your Kenora bank robber story because I'm from Kenora, Ontario and uh, was in grade seven at the time it happened. My two older sisters were in the crowd watching it happen. My older sister was working at the TD Bank, so he could have easily picked her bank, but he picked the CIBC. So two of my sisters were in the crowd watching it all happen. Unfortunately, when the dynamite went off, his body parts did on top of the building where I worked as a um, uh, jewelry store attendant. So yeah, that was a big, exciting story from Kenora. I had sent suggestion into a couple of podcasters before but never heard anything back so I was really thrilled to see that you guys had picked it up and did such a great job of it it was really funny and I learned a lot of things I didn't know uh next connection was to the David Millard story um uh sorry David Milgard story Uh, I was always very upset about that case. I had written a letter to the Minister of Justice to have him released also. And then uh, years later, when they um, had charged Larry Fisher with the David Melgard murder of Gail Millard, I was working as a flight attendant for Air Canada, and I had Larry Fisher on my flight when they were transferring him in between cities, and there were two RCMP officers escorting him. And I served him a very hot cup of coffee, and oh, I was so tempted to just dump that cup of coffee right on his crotch. But I think the RCMP officer was reading my mind. He kind of looked at me, and I thought twice and didn't do it, but sure would have liked to have anyway. Uh, So yeah, that's two stories. I'll call another time for some connections to other stories, but just love your podcast, guys. I tell everybody 
I can about it. Got a few people started on it also. And uh, just wishing you to be, hoping you'll be a good egg and not a doodle drawers. And have a most gratifying defecation in your favorite millinery creation. Bye, guys. <laughs> that, that was, was a good excellent. one. Thank you, Marina Bedard. <laughs> Thanks, Marina. So what does she do there in Peterborough, Matthew? Well, you know, I've connected the dots. Okay, the dots have been connected, yeah. She worked as in the jewel store, jewelry and yeah. and as a flight attendant. I think she's an international jewel thief. Oh, there you go. So she's like the Pink Panther. That really glamorous one with like a beehive. She puts the diamonds in her beehive, right? <laughs> Like like nineteen nineteen sixties movies with Cary Grant sort of thing. She's glamorous and she just travels the world moving diamonds around. There you go. Somebody's yeah. gotta do it. That's yeah. fun though. I kinda want that job. Let's listen to our next voicemail. We have another. Hey Mike and Matthew, it's Peter from Coco calling in. Um, I did a little binging today, so I'm probably gonna talk about two different things. Uh one of them is I was listening to your Colin from last week, and I just want to say I want to give a shout-out to Scott from Chatham, just because he is 40 minutes away where I'm from from Windsor. Um, the other thing I was going to say was listening to your Beaver Lake was tragedy was actually really good. Um, I was thinking about what Matthew was saying about how if we all had to watch, like, executions, would we feel differently about them? And then, um, Mike, when you mentioned that a friend sent you Saddam Hussein, it also reminds me how I was watching CNN that day and I didn't see a warning on a Saddam Hussein execution. And next thing I know, it looked like they were kidnapping him out of his bed and then they just took him and hung him. So I was like in complete shock. I never want to see anything like that ever again. Um, and the other thing was uh, the one before that, when you guys were talking about um, guys who were maximum going down to medium. Uh, I know the Paul Bernardo thing is very tricky to talk about because he's He's one of those guys who's in prison for life that's actually staying in prison for life. And do I think he should get to a medium security? Not, no, never. Like, he does not deserve it. But I can also see from a humanitarian point where he has been living by himself for 23 hours a day with one hour out since, like, 1996. I mean, he's been doing it for over 20 years, which does suck. But then again, he kind of put himself into that predicament. And they really should get, like, more people's opinions on leaving people with heinous crimes to lower uh, security facilities. Um, get that it. I'm just ranting, so I'm just working at a site in Coquitlam. Uh, keep up the good work. You guys, the show is great, and go take a shit in your ass. Uh, uh, it's, it's good to have feedback on episodes. Um, yeah. It, I, I like to know that people are listening, so. Yeah, that's always a good thing. Yeah. So how about a job title for this person? Yeah, absolutely. Zamboni? Do you know what a Zamboni is, Mike? I know what a Zamboni is, Matthew. So Zamboy, Zamboni choreographer. So oh, ha wow. Halftime shows with the Zamboni. It's kind of like, um, kind of like uh, you know, the swimmers that, that swim in formation. Sure. Synchronized swimming, yeah. Synchronized Zamboni dances us. Yeah. That, that sounds like fun. I would watch very that. Canadian, very Canadian job. Very Canadian thing. <laughs> All right. Let's listen to our next voicemail. Um, now, this one, it looks like there might be two. So we'll play the first one. And if it makes sense, we'll play the second. Uh, and 
If not, then we'll go back and play the second one. We'll figure it out. Well, my name's Marion, and I'm from Queens, New York, and I just finished listening to the Beaver Lake tragedy, and I have very mixed emotions about uh, capital punishment. Uh, my sister's a nurse, and she works in a prison. She just retired, and uh, a prisoner assaulted her, broke her nose, busted her teeth, he had nothing to lose. He's on life without parole. So what do you do with people like that? And she has told me instances where, um, you know, prison guards get killed, other inmates get killed. Uh, you know, uh, the way the prisons are run, both in Canada and here, I think uh, leave much to be desired, but you have people that just don't care, and you have people that would... Uh, show absolutely no remorse and understanding they have horrible backgrounds. But what do you do with somebody who kills a child? What happens if it's your child? I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is, but that's the other side. When you have life without parole or a long sentence, you have no, absolutely nothing to lose to hurt somebody. And I absolutely love, love, love your your podcast and some donut money is coming your way. Thank you. Bye. Wow. That was a Marianne. great voicemail. Marion from Queens. Queens, New York. <laughs> I like her. I love that accent so much. Yeah, and it's um, you know, and this is you know, I it's I I'm always happy to, to hear, you know, questions uh, uh uh about these sorts of things, right? Um yeah, I mean that's kind of my aim with the show is to have people talk about stuff. So yeah, I mean you know for me to answer the the question just on on a personal level is is you know I I don't believe uh, like for me it's it's about not creating um, a culture of vengeance, right? Yeah, and and yeah, you know there Marion of there are total assholes out there who are never changeable, like despicable people and i'm look at clifford olson for example he was sending horrible letters to the victims of his families explaining what he had done to them yeah and and i'm sorry that that happened to i think she said her sister or sister-in-law um you know and you know it's we just gotta manage them like for me personally i think um if we kill someone we lower ourselves to to sort of their level and uh, i'd rather see people incarcerated than given a, a quick out in a lot of ways. Yeah, right? like really away from people, not yeah. in a place where they're going to be able to bonk somebody on the nose. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know? that's, that's it. Yeah, it's there's some real, real unlikable people out there. But I have Marion's job. Okay. Birdhouse architect. I heard the birds tweeting in the background, so so she architects amazing birdhouses. <laughs> Well, there you go. I was going to say, it sounds like you got an angry bird behind you there. <laughs> the birds are going, you tell them, Marion. <laughs> you tell them. You tell them. But yeah, so um, she makes these fantastic birdhouses, right? Oh, wow. Like, they, they, they look like little mansions or like high rises and stuff like that. What a great voicemail. Thank you so much, Marion. And uh, we hope you call us again with more stuff because... You, you have an interesting perspective, for sure. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you. 
even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It's time to move on to Patreon and Donut Money donors. And speaking of Marion from Queens, New York, it looks like, I think this is you, uh, she has upped her pledge from $5 to $25 on Patreon. Yeah, wow. So thank Thank you you so much, Marion. Much appreciated. Wow. That's that's really great. She said donut money, but this is this is even better. That's super. And that is it for Patreon and donut money donors. Not much this week. Except for from Marion. Yeah. Marion, thank you so so much. I do hope she calls in again because I just love that accent. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I love that. She actually she has a great voice for radio. Yeah. I like it when people call from different places and, and I try to, I mean, I can place where they're from, from the, uh, the caller ID kind of thing. I don't get what the person's name is, but I can see the, uh, um, the area code. So I'll know. I knew she was from the New York area. Marion, let me, let me apologize for, for Mike's bad accents. <laughs> That's not nice, Matthew. <laughs> you know, just joking, buddy. I love you. Okay. Yeah, well, that doesn't change the fact you just slag me. You're like, okay. Yeah, okay. Whatever. Whatever, Whatever. Stockton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this week's episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, y'all.